Hi, I'm Chuck Betters, and you are listening to a Help and Hope resource that is produced by Mark Inc. Ministries. And you can visit markinc.org, and there you will find numerous stories that address real-life crises that are often, frankly, experienced in isolation and loneliness. And as you're going to hear in this story, there is really true help and hope in those very deep, dark, broken places. In the studio with me today is Peter Rosenberger. Peter is the founder of Caregivers with Hope, and he is also the author of an incredible book, Hope for the Caregivers. He also has a syndicated radio show where he offers practical help for those caregivers. You can visit markinc.org, that's M-A-R-K-I-N-C.org, where you will find Peter's website address and more information about his books and outreach and ministry God has called him to. Welcome, Peter. Thank you so much, Chuck, and I uh, really appreciate the opportunity to be with you all. I love what you do. I love the passion you have, and, and I love these things, these vignettes that you do with it, these interviews and so forth, and you're covering everything, and you fearlessly wade into every scenario it seems like that the human condition is is assaulted with, and I'm I am just thrilled to be a part of this. Peter, in your introduction to your book, Hope for Caregivers, you say that I'm quoting you now. Whatever burdens my fellow caregivers struggle with, I can help. I'm willing to put it all out there. You know that's a that's a pretty big claim. So why don't we start with what your credentials are for writing such a book and creating hope for caregivers. It is a big claim, and it's based on years and years, actually decades now of experience of dealing with the trauma and the heartache and the frustration of being a caregiver. I've learned over the years taking care of my wife, who's now had at least 78 serious operations and then just as many smaller procedures and all kinds of things, both legs amputated, 10 million plus in medical bills that I can count, 80 plus doctors, over 12 different hospitals, seven different insurance companies. I, I, I've been wading through this thing every single day for the last 31 plus years. And I've learned that the issue for caregivers is not uh, the health care. That's important, but it's not the issue. It's not dealing with doctors. That's important, but it's not the issue. Now, the issue for caregivers is a matter of our own heart. And we descend sometimes into madness as we are caring for somebody who is broken, impaired, suffering, uh, disabled, and we will go into very dark places in our own hearts. And I think a lot of it, Chuck, at the heart of it is a theological conversation that we have with ourselves and with the God that we think we know. And it starts off with, why would God allow? How could God do such a thing? And that reflects that we have such a limited understanding of God and how he works through suffering and through these things. And that's the starting point I find with most caregivers is they are so broken. They are so frustrated. Some of them are just incredibly angry and resentful and all these things. Man, there is nothing that you're feeling as a caregiver that I, I haven't failed at. I mean, I'm the crash test dummy of caregivers. But the thing about somebody who has failed as many times as I have and has gone down as many wrong paths is you can learn from them on what to avoid. And that's what I'm on a mission to do is not solve problems for caregivers. I can't help. I'm not going to solve it. I can't solve your problem anymore than I solve my problem. But what I can do is help us both navigate through these quagmires and get to a place of solid ground where we can catch our breath 
and make better decisions and learn a little bit more about life, love, God, and how to walk through these things as caregivers with, with calmness, with healthiness, and, and dare I even say it, Chuck, with joy. We can do this. It's not easy. It's a lot of work. It's not a one and done. It's a constant uh, vigilance. You're constantly shoring up areas, but it's a smarter way of doing it because we're in the middle of a, of a, of a maelstrom. This is what we are struggling with, and, and it's coming at us from all sides, from everywhere, and it's relentless. And into that, I am willing to take all of my failures, my experiences, my scars, things I've learned the hard way, and offer a caregivers a path to safety where they can catch their breath a little bit. You know, I was shocked to learn that uh, there are over 65 million caregivers. That's, I think that's about 20% of the uh, population. Can you take a moment and describe the journey of a caregiver? Well, it starts off with a reckless hurling ourselves at a difficult situation. Uh, you get the phone call and somebody has been hurt. You get the, the diagnosis that your child was born with such and such or that, you know, a disease has been now diagnosed, uh, things such as that. In my wife's case, she had a traumatic car accident when she was a teenager. I didn't even know her when she was hurt, but her parents got that phone call. I'm one of those kind of weird ones that I walked into it with my eyes wide open, knowing that I was going to serve in this role from the get-go. I didn't understand what it would mean. I mean, Chuck, I got to be honest with you, man, I was a dumber in a box of hammers. But I, I did know that she was hurt. I do, did know that it was serious. I did know that she was going to have challenges. Um, but most of us find ourselves getting that piece of information and then we, we throw ourselves without abandon just right into the midst of it, trying to, to somehow speak some kind of sanity into the midst of chaos. And then after a while, when this thing doesn't get better, it starts to dawn on us that this, this thing is, is not going anywhere. And we're starting to lose our steam, and then we become resentful, fatigued, and 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 frustrated, and depressed, and all those kinds of things. And then we we settled into a place of of despair, and it just keeps it just keeps descending down this staircase of of frustration and heartache and and misery and all kinds of things to the point where we end up sometimes resenting the very person we're caring for. You know, as a young husband, I recall you telling me that. You committed your whole life to caring for Gracie, but about, I think you said, 20 years into your marriage of caregiving, you hit a wall. Describe what that was like, please, and how it changed your perspective on caregiving. Well, I hit a wall a lot sooner than that. I've hit a lot of walls, Chuck. I've got, <laughs> you ought to see my head. The shape of it is a little bit odd. Uh, I've hit so many walls. I I have... Ran into a situation where after I watched her go into a seizure at the hospital, we were only been married. Yeah, we've been married about three years. And I'd been at the hospital with her around the clock um, through a pretty brutal surgery. We spent a lot of surgeries trying to save her legs. And I just kept pushing forth and doing the best I could. But when she went into this seizure and uh, it was such a horrific experience to watch this, I remember afterwards going out to the hall. It was about three in the morning. I'm still covered with vomit from her and with the nurses I'm trying to hold her down as she's throwing up and everything else. And I see her chart and I'm looking at this chart and I'm thinking, I just thought, I, I, I didn't think I was supposed to read it, Chuck. I thought, you know, that's hands off. I'm not medical personnel, but I, at that point I just didn't care. And I grabbed it and I noticed it was volume four of four and it was about as thick as the Atlanta phone book. 
uh, when there used to be phone books. I'm not, I'm dating myself at that point. Sure are. And it ended up, <laughs> it ended up growing at that one hospital to volume seven of seven before they converted it to electronic files. And that was just at one hospital. She's been treated at 12. And, and I, and I started reading it and there was a summary at the beginning of every volume. They put a summary of the patient, you know, what brought them to this point. I've actually later on, I would actually write some of those summaries with her surgeon because I have such a historical reference to this thing where a lot of people don't. But as I started reading the summary and I started looking through the notes, by that time I'd had enough exposure to this and I was smart enough to understand what some of these medical terms were meaning. And I remember the tears just falling down my cheeks and hitting the pages of that chart. And I could still, I was drinking stale coffee and I could still smell the vomit on me. And I'm sitting there in the hallway. And not too terribly long ago, we were visiting a friend at that same hospital and I saw that same spot where I was sitting. And I actually stopped for a moment with Gracie. She was in her wheelchair and I stopped for a minute and we, I just got a picture of us together right, right, right at that point. And I think I was thinking, this is not a car accident. This is not somebody who had, just a broken leg and she's going to have a weather vein for the rest of her life. Every time the weather changes, she'll know it. This, this is, this is more than that. This is devastation. And I started to sink, Chuck. I mean, I just, I was sinking because I thought I've got to, I've got to deal with this and the aftermath of this for the very rest of my life. And I felt so unqualified, so unprepared, so, so lost. I felt like I was drowning. And that took me into some dark, dark places for a long time. I, I think if I probably somebody would have probably diagnosed me with depression or who knows what they would have diagnosed me. I was a, Sometimes I was afraid to go and get a diagnosis, Chuck. I was afraid they put me in the ha-ha hotel. And, you know, I, I started going down that path of, of, of despair and darkness. It took me into some very, very bad places where I medicated out inappropriately with moral failures and everything else. So I, I understand this lonely, isolated, heartbreaking place that caregivers can get to. And, and but over the years, and, and we can get into this a little bit later. But over the years, I learned also that you can't push a wheelchair with clenched fist. And when you are eaten up with that much resentment or frustration or or inner rage, and and a lot of times, you know, depression is really just rage turned inward. I've heard that said many times, and and I I really kind of concur with that. I think that's a pretty good assessment. But it's, it's, it's impotent fury. I mean, you're, 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 you're absolutely incensed about a situation, but you can't do anything about it. And, and this is where caregivers find themselves. And this is what I'm speaking to. This is what I go out to. This is why I do the radio show. This is why I write books. And I'm writing to myself, Chuck. Make no mistake. I'm not trying to go out there and tell people I got the answers. Listen to me. I'm preaching to myself. I, it's no different than David at Ziklag when, when his own men took up rocks to stone him. And, and everybody had been taken away, all his wife and uh, children and, and, and all their possessions were, were uh, stolen away by the Malachites. And his own men were going to stone him. They had rocks in their hands. And it said, David encouraged himself in the Lord. And I thought that is probably one of the most profound places of Scripture for me, because I realized that even in the midst of such horrific things, I can stop and encourage myself in the Lord. But it's not going to come from within me. It's going to come from me saying out loud these things of God. I had a, a pastor friend of mine who was on my show recently, and he's been a caregiver for over 25 years with his wife with MS. And he said, we, we listen to ourselves way too much and speak to ourselves way too little. And I, boy, I really resonated with that, Chuck. I, I, I felt like that I was listening to my own dark thoughts for so long. But when I started speaking out loud these things of God, thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. The, you know, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. 
For this we know, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus and called according to his purpose. For I am convinced, you know, and Paul would have these litany of things that he would say that uh, where, where he would, his, the bedrock of his faith that he would go through. And when I started seeing that, and then I started seeing it in the hymns of the church and so forth, that was, that was the, um, the rope in the darkness that I clung to. And it started walking me out of these places where I could get on solid land and start catching my breath. You know, it's important. I think that uh, the point you're raising is that scripture speaks to our hearts. It's, it's God's way of, of speaking to us, just as prayer is our way of speaking to him. But as you were as you were talking, I was thinking, who has Peter had in his life over the years to speak to him? What what other friends or relatives or encouragers? Uh, who who was your Barnabas? Who who was the one that came alongside of you to encourage you? And I guess the broader question is: this obviously would be a serious problem for just about every caregiver. Uh, who who encourages them? Who holds their arms up? Uh, who who is your Aaron and, and who is your her that holds your arms up when when it's it's getting very very tense and very heavy? Well, surprisingly, it wasn't another caregiver, and that's one of the reasons I've stepped into the role that I've stepped into, Chuck, because I am determined I'm going to be uh, one of those individuals for these 65 million people who are struggling. I had a lot of people that came along. But they really didn't – not one person had a very specific way of engaging with me as far as the needs of the caregiver. But I had wonderful pastors. And this, this is something I want pastors as, as pastors are listening to this recording now to understand that they preach the gospel with fervency, with zealousness, and with humility. To understand that the people that are in the pews that are listening to them are going through real trauma. And if they go out there and preach pablum, that's, you know, victory, victory, victory. I got mine. You get yours. We're going to get our breakthrough. We're going to get this. We're going to get that. If they're going out there and preaching that kind of nonsense that is just, you know, you can get at any pep rally, then you're doing a disservice to the people who are serving. But those pastors who are going out there, even though they haven't suffered on the level that, that Gracie has or, or, or that I've gone through as a caregiver with her, but if they're treating the gospel with such humility and brokenness, I promise you it does not return. Well, it doesn't return void anyway, but it will be so effective to the suffering in them. So I've had pastors. I've had counselors. You know, some of the counselors I have have not been that great. I mean, you know, Gracie and I, uh, we've been to a lot of counselors. Some of them uh, left the industry. Some of them turned to drugs and alcohol. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. And, but, you know, we've had a, we've had a lot of, we've had a carnage of counselors behind us, you know, and I remember, I remember going to some of them and they would just look at me while they charged me an hourly fee and look at me with their hands held up. And I thought, well, why am I spending money talking to you? I've had various doctors who would spend time with me or, or uh, medical people. You know, but but I, but it was never one concerted effort on those on the many of those journeys. So I've aggregated from a lot of different sources to do this. But through it all, God still brought people in my life. One of those people I'll never forget who truly encouraged me. I don't think he even realized he was doing it, but he spent time with me. And did it was Jeff Foxworthy, and I cannot express my gratitude enough to this man who has been a, a true friend to me through this thing. So I've had an eclectic group. Johnny Erickson Tata has been a, a tremendous friend, and her husband, Ken, has been a tremendous friend through this thing. But all of it, God has woven different people 
what I've tried to do is take the best of everybody that God has brought into my life and condense it down into easy to understand messages, whether I'm speaking like I did with you guys earlier this year or on my radio show or writing or whatever, but to take a lifetime of people coming alongside of me at whatever way, in whatever level they could and offer uh, practical proven help while framed and pointing to the gospel. You know, when we lost our son, Mark, suddenly in 1993 to a car accident, a lot of people, godly people, people who really loved us, loved the Lord, they did not know what to do. They did not know how to handle us. They did not know what to say to us when they came into our house. There were a few, one in particular, one one of Sharon's sisters in particular. We describe it this way, that she was willing to put on the surgical gown go into the surgical room, get bloodied up with us, and take the beating that surgery often uh, gives us. She was willing to stay the course and enter into our pain with a lot of determination. And and as I'm talking to you, I'm thinking, okay, as a pastor, I've preached for 50 years, uh, and I know there are others who are listening to this resource who may not know where you itch, you know, and we want to be able to preach and teach and answer questions that people are really asking. So in saying that, I want to go into the surgical room with you and I want you to answer this, this question in particular. What are the major areas of struggle that you have seen most caregivers struggle with? How do we who are on the outside looking in minister to them? And answer the questions that they're asking. What are the needs of a caregiver? Well, caregivers struggle with what I call the fog of caregivers, fear, obligation, and guilt. And just like any fog, Chuck, when you get into a fog, you've got to slow down. Because if you don't slow down, you're going to run the risk of slamming into something horrible. Now, you run the risk of slamming into it anyway, but it's, you're going to be less hurt if you if you slow down and the second thing is you've got to recalibrate and get external guidance through it for example a plane or a ship they have gps and so forth there is no way you're going to be able to navigate through this fog of caregivers if you are running at breakneck pace and then trying to basically listen to your own thoughts and get through it you can't do it it's impossible you're welcome to try it people are welcome to try it you know but once you slam into that tree Come back to me and let's walk through this again, because I'm telling you, you will run into a ditch. You will get hurt and you'll probably hurt people that you love doing it. Fear, obligation and guilt. There are those three things absolutely torque a caregiver. And it takes us in all kinds of destructive paths. When we live in fear and anxiety and, and, and I, I listen, I'm preaching to myself here, Chuck. Please understand that this is where I live. And I have to constantly be going back to this. When you're on a plane, for example, and they put it on autopilot, that plane is not on course 90% of the time. It's being buffeted around by the winds and so forth, but it has a heading. And it's the plane, the, the autopilot constantly makes adjustments to help keep the plane on heading. Well, that's what we've got to do as believers. And for caregivers, it gets very specific in this. I, I don't think we deal with anything as a caregiver that everybody else doesn't deal with. As far as the principle of the concept, we just deal with it relentlessly. And so we need to respect the onslaught, the relentless onslaught. So when you get into those fear, well, what, how many, how many scriptures, Chuck, can you think of off the top of your head that deal with fear? <laughs> I mean, think about 
from day one, you know, we're dealing with fear. The moment, you know, Adam and Eve sinned, what did they do? They were afraid. <laughs> and, and God knows this. And he keeps speaking to that fear throughout all of scripture. Fear not, fear not, fear not, fear not, fear not. He knows that we are scared spitless. I mean, we are so terrified of things and we will turn ourselves into emotional and physical and financial pretzels because of fear. And caregivers live with that fear. What's going to happen? How are we going to do this? What are we going to do? How are we going to, you know, and we just torment ourselves. You know, what does the Bible say about uh, fear and torment? It says fear has torment, but perfect love cast out fear. So that's our lifeline with that fear is we see that perfect love and we see God's purpose in this and we trust him in this. Realize that he who began a good work is faithful to complete it to the day of Christ Jesus. That's how you deal with fear. You keep speaking that out loud to realize that, wait a minute, if he's Lord at all, he is Lord of all. And he's not going to abandon me in this. It's going to be painful. It's going to hurt. It's going to really stink sometimes. But yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. And if we don't remind ourselves of this on a daily, actually hourly, sometimes minute by minute, moment by moment basis, we're going to get ourselves in all kinds of messes. And I, I know that. I got the scars to prove. Mm -hmm. The second one, obligation. We feel so obligated to this, whether we brought this child into the world with special needs, whether we, uh, we caused this thing or because it's our parents or because this or because that, we feel obligated to do it. And let me tell you something, Chuck. It takes about seconds to go from feeling obligated to feeling resentful. And the more obligated you feel, the more uh, that you feel bound to this thing and, and in bondage to it the quicker you're going to get into full-blown resentment. And what I say with obligation is, you know what? No, let's look at something different. Let's look at this as stewardship. I didn't do this to Gracie, Chuck. I can't undo it. I've done my share of things, but I didn't hurt her like this. I didn't break her body. I didn't, I wasn't, I didn't even know her when she had a car wreck. I didn't do this and I can't undo it. I don't own it. God owns this. It is way beyond my pay grade and my abilities. So what I learn to do is become a steward of it, and I do the best I can, and I make amends when I screw it up. I make amends as quickly as I can. I get back on the horse, but I don't own this. I didn't do it, and I can't undo it, and that's the key for it is that you can't undo it. You cannot undo Alzheimer's. You cannot undo traumatic brain injuries. You cannot undo spina bifida, cerebral palsy, all these kinds of things. You can't undo it, so you don't. Put that kind of crazy pressure on yourself to fix it, and and you're not obligated to it because you don't own it, and you become a steward of it. And being a steward is a whole different mindset, and, and it shifts the way you think. You you start thinking, okay, I don't own this. This belongs to God. What does God say about this? Where is God? At? And all of a sudden, Chuck, you watch verse after verse, hymn after hymn, start flooding your mind. When you start asking, what does God say about this? What does the owner say about this? What does the boss say about this? You watch and his word will come sweeping over you and verses that you forgot about that you even knew. You'll start hearing them and you'll start seeing them in places. And then the last one is guilt. And let me tell you something, there's no problem so bad that guilt can't make it worse. And I'm not talking about just guilt over Moral failures and big sins that get great press. I'm talking about guilt over the fact that you want to watch television 
for an hour uninterrupted and you get mad when you can't or you want to just read a book or you just wish you could have someplace quiet to eat a, eat a quiet meal. I'm talking about guilt over family members. I was just talking to somebody the other day. Her mother has dementia and, and they're struggling because she lives in a different town and she's back and forth and her mother doesn't even recognize anymore and she feels guilty because she's wanting Jesus to go ahead and take her mother home. And that kind of guilt will absolutely bust you up as a caregiver. It will crash down on you and it will, then it will spur you into frenetic behavior. And so what I say to you, and this is as believers, Chuck, this is the most beautiful words, give yourself some grace. You know, I need grace so much. I married a woman named Grace. That is probably the most beautiful word that we have in the English language is grace. And when you start thinking about the grace that is extended to us through Christ Jesus, unmerited favor. God knows how painful this is for you. He knows how difficult this is, and he has not put you in there to fail at doing it. He didn't set me up so he could look at that Peter Rosenberg. Oh, geez, Peter, what are you doing? He knows this, and he has extended grace to me in this thing. And all we have to do is stop torquing ourselves. Not that it gives us a permission to, to do aberrant behaviors. Paul said that so clearly. Not so, not so sin that could abound more, but it's just that we realize there is grace for us in this unmerited favor that says, you know what? Be still and know that I am God. It's going to be okay. He who began a good work is faithful to complete it. Give yourself some grace. And and this is something that fear, obligation, and guilt turns into grace, purpose, and stewardship. And that spells GPS, grace, purpose, and stewardship. That's how you get through that fog of caregivers is grace, purpose, and stewardship. And that's a GPS. Well, I know you have other responsibilities other than being a caregiver. How do you handle those other responsibilities when grace needs you as much as she does? And how do you balance your life? How do you, how do you balance the, uh, the demands of day to day living? Uh, you mentioned a minute ago that you, you would just, like not to feel guilty if you take an hour to read a book or to watch a TV program without interruption. And I am sure over the years, this has taken its toll on your marriage as well. Can you speak to that? It has and it does and it will. You don't do it unintentionally. You have to be intentional about everything. You have to be intentional about rest. You have to be intentional about uh, organizing your day and your life and prioritizing, and you're going to get it wrong. And then you have to be intentionally about, you know, giving yourself some grace when you get it wrong. And then you have to be intentional about learning from it and making some amends when you need to. And you have to be intentional about extending forgiveness. And nothing about this is haphazard. So there is a mindset that says, you know what, I'm going to do this and I'm going to make some time for me. If I don't, if I don't, if I don't take time for for stillness, I'm going to have to make time for illness. You know, that's that's the reality for us as caregivers. The stress that we're under, and I guarantee you, every everyone here listening that is dealing as a caregiver right now, they understand that stress. They understand what it feels like to clench their jaw. They understand what it's like to to walk away muttering like Yosemite Sam under their breath, going second freaking wreck. <laughs> they understand that. They know what it's like to feel like so mad that you're spitting nails. They know what it's like to be so adrenaline high because you're trying to frantically deal with stuff. That stuff will kill you. And you're going to have to take time for stillness. And you're going to have to take time to start doing things in your life. Now, the way I've made it work for me is I use a lot of technology. I mean, this may sound simple, but one of the things I use is Bluetooth. I run my business, you know, from my home. I, I work from home and, and I work 25-8 sometimes. 
but I use a, a Bluetooth earpiece and I'm always on the phone. And, and if somebody calls me, they know that they're probably going to hear me doing the dishes in the background or something. And I don't make any, I don't make any apologies for it. I've even done interviews with major networks and so forth while cooking a roast or doing laundry or ironing, you know, those kinds of things. I have to, I have to use my time wisely. And yet I have to run a business and I've tried to make some smart decisions for myself to do it. And I've weighed out what are the options that I have. I mean, if I, if I work in the corporate world, which I used to do, Gracie's needs were just so demanding that I had to switch in a different way. And, and I feel that, you know, everybody's going to have a different thing. And, and sometimes you have to do a home-based business. Sometimes you have to have some help to come in. Sometimes you have to sit down with, with family and, and a social worker and plan out, okay, look, one person is bearing all the load. We need some help here, and we're going to have to divvy up this help. But don't try to do that by yourself. Get a trained counselor, a professional, a pastor, somebody to sit in there and mediate that with you because otherwise it's going to descend into to an argument with the family. But I, I, I find those things. I, I, I do martial arts. I just recently earned my second degree black belt and I, this is important to me. I go to support groups. These are important. I don't go as much as I'd like, but I go as much as I can. And I, I sit at the piano and I'm, I've been a pianist since I was five years old. I sit there at the piano and I work out some of the kinks of my soul and I get alone with my own thoughts to do that. And then when I get on my show, Chuck, or when I'm on your show right now, when I'm doing this thing with you. I'm saying out loud every single thing that I lean on, and I can feel my heart breaking as I say it because I know it's truth. And so I hang on to the truth that is coming out of my mouth. What do I have that I that I haven't received, Chuck? Everything I have comes from what Christ has done in my life. So if I'm saying anything of value, it's because of the painstaking work of the gospel in my life. And so when I get it out in a situation like this, when I'm talking to you, I promise you I am strengthening myself in this journey. Because I've got to be a caregiver for the rest of the, of the today, and I've already been doing it this morning, and and so this is the this is the privilege I have of of being able to say it out loud. You know, I'm going to step back just for a moment, and in the time that we have remaining, I want to address the people who are trying to help the caregiver, the caregivers to the caregiver. What are some of the more practical ways that people should try to help the caregiver? Well, the first thing you do is I tell people to suit up. Suit up means put on the, the righteousness of Christ. Put on Christ. Nothing's going to get on you. It's like that friend that came in and said she's going to put on the surgical gown. That's a beautiful example of suiting up. You're going to put on Christ. Nothing's going to get on you. You're dressed for the job. Suit up. Show up. Just be with people. Just be in their lives. Just be present and then shut up. Suit up, show up, and shut up. You don't need to go in there and offer some kind of counsel. Nobody's going to say anything to me that comes along peripheral wise. And, oh, Peter, have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? I mean, come on. Let's don't be insulting to people. Let's go back and look at Job 2.13. In Job 2.13, his buddies came and they sat there. They were aghast at his level of suffering. And they sat there in silence for seven days. Most people can't be silent for seven minutes. And they come into situations of suffering that are way beyond their pay grade. And they start trying to basically bloviate and opine about why God is allowing. And then all three of those guys got it wrong. And and Job never even got it right. And God never bothered to tell any of them what he was doing. We have that because of Scripture. But these guys, to, to Scripture's record, never even understood why it was happening. So there's nothing that you're going to necessarily say to people that's going to um, make them understand why this is happening. And, and don't even spend time with the why. Spend time with the what is. 
and comfort them. Jesus came to, you know, he started his whole ministry saying, bind up the wounded and heal the brokenhearted. You know, that's, and set the cap, pro, proclaim liberty to the captives. And so the, the first thing you do is suit up, show up, and then shut up and just pay attention. See what's going on around you. And then when you have a moment, and, and if you're listening with both ears to the Holy Spirit, you'll, you'll know what that moment is. Look that caregiver quietly, quietly look at him because they're already fr- frantic and, and their nerves are raw. Look at him in the eye. Look at that suffering person in the eye and just say these words. Say, I see you. I see you. And I see the magnitude of what you carry. And my heart breaks for you. Start with that. Start with that level of humility that you actually notice these people. Most caregivers feel invisible. They stand in a hospital room corner. They're up at two in the morning mopping stuff up. They're, they're back and forth to work. They're doing all these things. And when somebody asks how their loved one is doing, they rarely ask about how the caregiver is doing. And we lose our identity. We can't even speak in first person singular half the time. You know, we just got home from the hospital or our situation or she had a bad night. But ask a caregiver, how are you doing? And, and just to let them know that you see them, that you see them. The other day, I had a lady that called. I know her, and, and she was taking care of her husband. Her husband was very, very, very ill, and her car broke down, and she went to church and, and or called up a church member, and she finally worked up the courage to ask somebody for help. And the church member looked at her with great compassion and said, oh, I'm going to pray for you, and I'm going to bring you a meal. And the, the lady said, you know, I appreciate the prayer, and I appreciate the meal, but my car's broken. I can't get to work. I need a mechanic. So that's another way you can help a caregiver. You know, you can't drive a tuna noodle casserole to work. Make sure that they have good transportation. If they, You don't have to pay for it out of your own pocket. Maybe you know a mechanic who might be willing to help. You know, make sure that they're not up on the roof cleaning the gutters. Make sure that their water heater is working, that their appliances are working, that their gardening is, is done or the house doesn't need repairs. These are little things that you can do to help a caregiver. Don't make meals for them because it'll end up being high-calorie meals and all that stuff. That's great every so often, but eventually somebody's got to learn how to cook. Teach them how to cook or go to the grocery store and offer to help get their groceries and stock their pantry or something to that effect. Offer to sit with their loved one while they go to their own doctor. There are so many different ways that you can help by being specific. There are riches in the niches. Be specific with it. Go into those little niche areas when you think about with the caregiver and all the things that are going on in their lives. Don't just say, I'll pray for you. That's a platitude. Pray for them as you minister to them. You know, that's that's how you do it with the caregiver. You know, when we, again, I keep go- going back to when we lost our son, Mark, our house was filled with activity. There were people coming in and out of our house that um, some of them, I didn't even know who they were. Clean shirts were showing up fully pressed in white dress shirts, whiter than they've ever been before, meals that were being made for us and prepared for us. And with all of that hubbub that was going on, there was one man in particular who came to our house. He's a friend of mine until this day. He sat in the corner and he just sat there for days. He just sat in the corner for days. And I asked him later as we were talking about the events that led to Mark's death. Uh, I asked him, I said, I said, Bob, you were just sitting there in the corner. What were, what were you thinking when you were just sitting there in the corner? He said, I just needed to be involved in your pain. He said, I just needed to be sitting there around you, covering you with my prayers, just being there in case you just looked my way and said, Bob, can you do this for me? Or can you do that for me? And uh, out of all of the people who ministered to us, I remember him the most. Because he just sat there with compassion 
and love and he cared for us. He, he cared for what we were going through at that particular time. You know, I think about, I think about that when it comes to the caregiver, you must have incredible emotional issues and emotional needs, uh, loneliness and maybe some anger and bitterness and all of those other things that, that come naturally to us, even those of us who are not caregivers. Can you speak to that particular person who like Job's friends, you know, say what we want to about his friends. At least they came initially and said nothing. They just sat there with him for days. They, they were just there. It's when they opened their mouths that they got into trouble. But do you have people like that in your life? People who are willing to just sit there and wait until the need arises and, and they're there, Johnny on the spot, ready to go when, whenever they sense that you have that need. I do. I do have those people. Uh, one of them is my father. I'm blessed with, with tremendous parents. And um, my dad has not been a caregiver like I have been and uh, on any way stretch of the imagination. But he has been a minister just like you for over 50-something years and is a wise, wise soul. And he's one of those individuals. I have siblings. I have four brothers and a sister. Uh, I have sons that are that way, even though they themselves are caregivers. I have sons that are like that. I've cultivated friendships. I think, again, I go back to the intentionality. You've got to intentionally cultivate relationships with people sometimes. And I've done that. Uh, and I've got godly, godly men who I can reach out to or sometimes instinctively know to call me. They're not, not a lot because you don't need a lot of people like that in your lives. You get too many people in there and it starts getting a little bit weird. But you need you need a few who can just speak into your trauma. And, you know, I, I will say this, and it may sound a little bit, you know, poetic or dramatic, but I think about the hymn writers, Chuck. And as a pianist, this is where my reference point is. I've grown up playing hymns and the great hymns of the church. And I think about these hymn writers who wrote such amazing hymns out of such stark sorrow and pain and loss and heartbreak. And, you know, those guys are still ministering to me. And to you and to so many others, because they took the time to write it down and they took the time to put this hymn together. It is well with my soul. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's love? Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Those those people took the time to write those things down. And so they speak to me as well. And there, there are resources out there. I, I think that it's not a lack of resources that we have as caregivers. I think it's a lack of resourcefulness sometimes is that we are we willing to look in unexpected places for for encouragement, for strength for today, bright hope for tomorrow? Are we willing to accept God using a guy sitting in the, in the corner of the room just sitting there quietly? Mm. And you were in the midst of your great anguish. God sent a guy to just sit there and be still and to model what the Holy Spirit does for us. The Holy Spirit is so gentle with us. God is not there to just beat the crap out of us. He He is gentle with us. He loves us. And his spirit is is gentle. The comforter calls he calls the comforter. And so are we willing to to accept God using the most sometimes the most unexpected things to comfort us? A guy just sitting there in your home. With me, it was a redneck comedian, you know, you know, just sitting beside me and just willing to listen to me and to speak from his own journey and his own pain and his own sorrow. There are so many ways that God will use things in our lives if we will look for them and if we will be willing to accept them. I think sometimes we're so busy looking for the grandiose that we miss 
the the mm. exquisite. You know, I imagine that there are such difficulties, hurt, weariness for the caregiver. Can't even imagine what the day-to-day must look like. Let me ask you this. What practical three steps do you take when you're at the end of your rope in a daily task of caregiving for Gracie? You talk about wait, water, and walk. What does that mean? Well, wait means just what it says. Stop. Just stop. Wait. Don't keep charging in, you know, and keep making the situation worse. Slow down. Stop. Wait. Be still and know that I am God is what scripture says. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Uh, in martial arts, uh, we, we focus so much on breathing, just breathing. And I do a self-defense type of martial arts. We're not an aggressive art where I'm going out there trying to start something up. I'm just wanting to be, be capable of self-defense. Well, in order for that to happen, number one, I have to value self, not in an egotistical way, but to recognize the unique individual that I am, that I was created by God. I'm precious in the eyes of the Lord, uh, are his saints. And, and, and so I want to defend that. And I want to be a good steward of it. Sin would, would, would love to, to, to destroy what God has created. And so we wait and let that, and we just breathe in, in self-defense. We breathe, just breathe four seconds in, eight seconds out. Just wait, slow down, take a moment and then water, drink to think, just drink some water, put something in your mouth besides words. You know, the word wait stands for, why am I talking? And then, you know, and if that doesn't work, try waste, W-A-I-S-T. Why am I still talking? <laughs> you know, just wait, just just shut up and wait. That's what I have to tell myself all the time and then walk. And if that's not enough, just take a moment to go out on a walk, bleed off some of that stress with something physical. It doesn't cost anything to wait, drink a glass of water or walk. That is, that is very, very affordable for every caregiver. Just, you know, cool down a little bit, bleed off some of that stress, recalibrate, breathe four seconds in, eight seconds out. You exhale twice as long as you inhale and you watch and see if you don't settle your spirit down and then you can make better decisions when you're calmer. I, you know, if how many people have ever made a good decision when you're frantic, you know, and, and that's, that's a recipe for more, bad, more bad stuff that'll make you more frantic. So we calm down. You know, my dad used to say that sometimes in the army, the leader is the guy that remembers where the Jeep was parked. You know, you don't have to be a three-star general to be the leader. Sometimes you just remember where the Jeep is parked. Sometimes it's just a simple thing of let's get back to a place of safety and, and let's, let's go back and then let's start from there. One of the things about being a caregiver and, and what we do uh, with the show and everything else, it's not one and done. There is no destination, Chuck, where, okay, we've got it. You know, you're going to be out of debt or you're, you're healthy now or this is over. You got the new job or whatever. There's not a one and done. It's not a destination of completion. This is something we're doing for the rest of our lives. And even if our, when our loved one dies, if they die before us, which that's the goal, sadly, but that is the goal for me to stand at a grave. But I don't want to stand there with clenched fist at God, myself, at others, or Gracie, or anybody. But even after they pass away and God takes them home, we're going to deal with the reality of what happened to us in the journey of caregiver probably for the rest of our lives. It's shaping the way we look at life, the way we look at God, our theology, everything is being affected by this. So it's a lifetime of delving into this and trusting God with these horrific realities and recognizing that. Okay, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. There's more going on here. 
And, and how do I know I can trust him? Well, guess what? He stretched out his arms and gave his life for us on the cross. That I know. For this we know, Paul says, all things work together for good to those who love Christ and are called according to his purpose. Love God and called according to his purposes. This we know this. So we get back to We wait, cool down, bleed off some stress, and mm. get back to what we know. And we anchor yeah. ourselves in that knowledge. Amen. And then we move from there. Peter, what are, what are some of the ways uh, people have tried to encourage you that brought you up short or left you empty? Oh, I think when people give me the, the, the standard, um, you know, health and wealth theology, you know, that kind of stuff where, you know, if you had enough faith, God would do this. Or I had a, I had a lady write me this morning, you know, watch this video because God does heal. And, and if, if people could get to the truth of them, that he could open up the healing and all this, you know, people are always trying to work out their own theology and their own doctrine stuff on, on Gracie and, and me and, and stuff like that. And I, you learn to just kind of, uh, like I do in martial arts, I could just parry those away and block them away and, and send them on their way. They don't get hurt. I don't get hurt, but I don't have to deal with their nonsense. Um, I, I don't have a lot of time for people with bad theology. I'll be gracious with it. I used to be a little bit more acerbic with it, but I don't have a lot of patience with people who are not suffering coming up and pronouncing their poor theology on me. Um, and that, that, that's, and I certainly don't let it happen with Gracie. And I, I've had conversations with, uh, Johnny Erickson Todd and I've talked about this before, you know, the same kind of thing when you, when you're out in the public and you're dealing with these kinds of things, you always want to get people that emerge from, you know, wherever, and they want to come and just, you know, bloviate about stuff that they really haven't spent a lot enough time. They're not really qualified to say these things. And, and yet that doesn't preclude them from saying it. <laughs> so, and then when people come up and just do the patronizing thing, well, take care of yourself. Well, th- thank you for the obvious, you know, what does that mean? Mm. You know, come on. It really is that, that, that what you get, that's what you got to offer. Take care of yourself. Thank you for, I, I hadn't thought of that until now. You know, I've been a caregiver for three decades since Reagan was president, but now finally I understand <laughs> what I can do. I can take care of myself. Thank you for sharing that with me. You know, I, I don't try to be that that sarcastic with people, but that they, they do that because they don't really know what to say. Get some rest. Well, let me, let me tell you something to sleep and rest are two different things. And, uh, I can get a good night's sleep, but that doesn't mean I'm at rest and I can be doing the right thing, but that doesn't mean I'm right. That doesn't mean I'm right in my heart. And so what, if you really want to help a caregiver, go back to those things I said earlier, get very specific with it, but be gentle. Understand what's going on. Read my book first before you go decide to have a caregiver ministry. (laughs) You know, I would tell people just, I've already written it down. You don't have to come up with the words. I got it. I speak caregiver fluently at 31 years of this. I should be able to do it. And, you know, don't, don't go in there thinking that you're going to solve it because you're not. You go in there and you tread lightly because you don't know what God is doing. And it's a, it's a smart thing to go lightly into people's suffering because you don't know what God is doing. You guys, you and Sharon went through the horror of losing your baby and people that would come in and give you platitudes, shame on them for opening their mouth and speaking pablum. They didn't know what God was doing. They didn't know anything. They should have just shut up. And been like that guy that was sitting there in the corner of the room just waiting to serve. You know, we don't know what God is doing, and we're not going to know until we get into his yeah. presence. I want, yeah. Period. I want to encourage everybody who's listening to this to pick up Peter's book, Hope for the Caregiver. In fact, uh, Peter, I want to read uh, what you wrote on page 45 in that book and then have you react to it 
you said when your wife is seizing, going into respiratory arrest, screaming in agony, or listlessly looking off and living in a place where she can't be reached, no ministry or testimony provides consolation in those moments. When I hang my hat on is far greater than those things. And that's what helps me push back against the hopelessness, standing alone in hospital corridors, raging at my powerlessness, watching Gracie grimacing in pain, daily checking to see if she's still breathing or hanging my head in weariness. I depend upon a greater source of hope and consolation than my my mind and the minds of others can fully comprehend. Tell us about that hope, Peter, and how listeners can experience a similar hope. You know, we have a, a prosthetic limb ministry that Gracie started when she gave up her legs. We work in Africa and we put legs on amputees. It's a wonderful ministry. And I've actually had people tell us, they come alongside of us, I know that what happened to Gracie is terrible, but look at the ministry that you have. That's what I call the, the consolation of speculation. And, and that's not consolation to me. As wonderful as that is, and I love to see the fruit that God is weaving through this thing. But in those high drama moments, those high crisis moments, Chuck, and you understand what those feel like. You and Sharon both really understand those moments. You don't want to hear the consolation of speculation of that, well, God obviously has a plan or God, you know, such and such. Or people trying to speculate on why God's doing anything. The only thing, the only thing that sustains us is the knowledge that he took on a horror far greater than amputation. He took on a horror far greater than a car wreck that, that forever permanently left my wife severely disabled and took your boy to heaven. He took on a horror far worse than any of these things. And he did that on our behalf so that this is as close to hell as we're going to ever have to be if we are in Christ Jesus. This is as close to hell as we ever have to be. And that is what gives me true hope to know that when sorrows white like sea billows roll, and you understand that, Chuck, you and Sharon both really understand sorrows like sea billows rolling. And when they roll over us, this is what we recall to mind. And therefore, we have hope. Great is thy faithfulness. Those words mean something. Those things said from a place of humility and from experience and from uh, a depth those things mean something to you, and they mean something to me. And that's how you minister to each other. That's how we bear one another's burdens. And we tread with such humility and such such graciousness into people's sorrow. I am not there to fix your stuff. I am there to point you to the same Savior that I desperately cling to. And this is how we do it. I was uh, on my birthday earlier this summer. I went, no, it was, it was last year. And I went out to, I, I treated myself to Waffle House. Don't laugh. And I went out to Waffle House and I know all the waitresses there. They've been there for 30 something years. And as I was walking in, there was a heavy set man who was escorting out an older man using a walker. And, and the lady that the, the, the waitress there at the Waffle House said to me, she says, Peter, Go out there. I'm not going to serve you breakfast. So you go out there and, and pray with. He's put that man in hospice today. You go out there and pray with him, and then I'll serve you breakfast. <laughs> and I thought, well, okay, I'm I'm obviously not going to get breakfast until I go out there and spend some time with this guy. So I thought, okay, I'll go out there. And I went out there and talked to this guy. By that time, he got him in the car, 
and he was coming around to his side and I said, Judy sent me out here and she said she won't serve me breakfast till I come out here and spend some time with you and pray with you. What's going on? And he looked at me and he started crying. And he said, I'm, he's got cancer and I'm putting him in hospice today. This was his last meal that we went out with together. And they have been homosexual partners for 20 something years. And I looked at this man. He was shaking. He was crying so hard. That was not the time for me to start explaining to him the, the implications of homosexuality. That was not the time for me to start beating him over the head with this. This man was in shock. He was in heartbreak. He was in fear. He was in guilt. He was in all of those things. And so you know what I did with him, Chuck? I grabbed him by the hand and I told him about this gospel and I prayed with him right out there in the parking lot of Waffle House. And I gave him my card and I said, I want you to call me. And I've seen him again since then. And we've had more conversations. That's how you do it. You don't go out there and you try to beat them over the head and try to fix them. That's not, that is beyond my pay grade. I can't convict anybody of sin. I can't do any of those things. Only the Holy Spirit can. Only the Word of God can. Our job is to deliver it. Results are God's department. Yeah. I'm in sales, mm-hmm. not management. And, and I don't have to fix or go into somebody's horrific circumstances and somehow offer them the three-point path to getting their life back on track. I go to them and put my arm around them and tell them about this great God who loves them deeply, point them to this Savior, and say, here's, here's what we could do right now, right here. And this is how this is how we can get you to a place of safety where you could make healthier decisions for yourself. Peter, it is our hope and prayer that this interview is going to be listened to by the right people uh, who need it the most. I want to thank you for your transparency for your willingness to, like you say, put it all out there and uh, offering help and hope to hurting people. I appreciate so very much uh, your ministry. And why don't you, as we close, why don't you tell us uh, about how people can stay in touch with your ministry, how they can access your materials? And also, can you say a word about your new show that's that's uh, going to be syndicated? Sure. Caregivers with Hope is the website for everything I do caregivers related. And um, I got blog posts. I have videos. I have audio. I've got it all out there. So much material, so many resources. You can order the books from there. My new CD is out, Songs for the Caregiver. You can listen to excerpts of it. I've got special songs that Gracie and Johnny Erickson Tata have recorded together that are out there. They're wonderful duets that they've done. Um, it's caregiverswithhope.com. My book, Hope for the Caregiver, you can order that from out there. You can follow along at Facebook. I do the show every Sunday afternoon at 3 Central on the 1510 WLAC. You can stream it through iHeart or listen across the Truth Network. And then we're adding more and more stations to it. You can, we, we Facebook live the show as well. So you can watch it live on uh, Caregivers with Hope on Facebook. My Twitter account is Hope for Caregiver. I'm putting stuff out there constantly. Everything I do is specifically geared towards strengthening the family caregiver, coming alongside you and offering what I have, my own failures, my own scars, to help uh, provide, be a source of encouragement and wisdom and a path towards you getting stronger as a caregiver. This is what I do. This is why I do it. I'm extremely clear on my mission and my message. Chuck, I got to tell you and Sharon that it is such a privilege to be with you. I love these series of things that you're doing. They're not TED Talks. They're Chuck and Sharon Talks. And uh, I just I just love them. And, and I love what you guys are doing. You, you are fearlessly going into the human condition. 
with the light of the gospel. And you, you have no idea what an honor it is for me to participate. Well, your friendship you means so a thank lot you so to us, much. and uh, you have truly blessed us um, with with your story, with Gracie's story, and uh, give our love to her. Put a, put your arms around her, give her a big hug and a kiss from us. We uh, at Marking Ministries, we exist for the purpose of offering help and hope to hurting people. And if you're listening to this, you can visit our website at markinc.org. That's M-A-R-K-I-N-C dot org. And uh, you can see there all of the resources we offer. They're free of charge, free downloads. We have just started a new series called Ask Dr. Betters. And I got to tell you, it's an interesting series because I'm given some really, really tough questions to try to answer from a biblical perspective. So there's a lot of material that is there at markinc.org and a lot of material that uh, Peter and Gracie are offering with their ministry. I hope and pray that this resource has been a rich blessing to you. If you do not know the Jesus we have been speaking of, we exist at Mark Inc. for the purpose of helping you to understand who he is and what he came to accomplish. And uh, we would be more than happy to help you. Visit us at markinc.org. Uh, send us an email, a text, like us on Facebook, all those other social media opportunities are there. But uh, if you really want to talk to us, give us a call at 877-MARK-INC, 877-M-A-R-K-I-N-C. And as you listen to this, to God be the glory. Peter, thank you so much for your willingness to put it all out there, to be as transparent as you have been. And thank you for your willingness to do this interview with us. 